Um, say, so what are you saying, man? I'm good, man. You good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the good. building? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for coming on, man. How's life? Hectic, busy, but good. Progressive, so, yeah, just been so busy with mentivity mm-hmm. of late. Um, I'm a father, so my son just gone to sixth form. So let, let's start with that, because I've been seeing the posts and the stories. Mm-hmm. So, so what, he's, he's, he's now in sixth form. Yeah. He did really well in his GCSEs. Yeah, yeah. What did he get? He did two A's. Wicked. Two, no, six B's and one C. Nice. So, and nice. it's a young man that doesn't like education in terms of <laughs> formal education in the school. So I had to refocus him, man. Like literally use football to focus him and the last seven, eight months of school, he just went in. Mm. So um, yeah, fully deserved. So now he's doing a football education program because uh, he's got aspirations of being a professional football player. So yeah, it's next stage of life for him, man. So yes, that's been yes. taking up a lot of my time. So it's been good. Though. I love to see that. I love yeah. to see that. Um, So this podcast says is one um where I speak to people that I know that have in some way done one of the three careers that I've done. So it's either DJing events, um, athletes, um, or journalism broadcasting. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that it's aspirational. So I want people that are listening to this to kind of see the journey of, of my guests. Um, those that are at the start of their journey to see like, oh, right, I'm here, but you know, I could I could be there in, in five, 10 years time. And those that may be half of their journey to kind of keep them inspired to keep going and carrying on. You've done. Um, you, you've you've been a, you've been a footballer, so I want to get to that in a little bit as well. Mm. But I think what most people will know you for is your community work and your work as a as an activist mm. and uh, working with young boys in particular via mentivity. I reckon most people on our platform will know you and what you do. But just for those that don't know about mentivity, what is mentivity and what inspired you to want to kind of get get that going? Oh well, mentivity <clears throat> really is an extension of my family and my mum's philosophy in terms of education and supporting those closest to her, uh, family and friends. And it's a mentoring organization and an alternative educational provision which seeks to go into schools and mentor young boys and young girls uh, to support them on the journey of life, but marry them up with their passions and link that to a career, which is tangible and viable for them. Because a lot of young black boys and girls just don't see those role models Mm -hmm. or don't see those career pathways. So Mentivity is there just to do that and change their trajectories by positivity really and sustained mentoring so it's a mixture of like one-to-one mentoring and group work and we work with the families as well and again signposting towards our community partners in terms of things they're passionate about might be football might be basketball might be music might be a lawyer Mm -hmm. you know we've got a vast network of people that we can signpost them to so that's what mentivity is and it's been seven years nearly uh, that i've been running that as ceo and founder um but the inspiration was really the mentors that I had in the community that supported me mm-hmm. through football. Mm-hmm. And without Abdullah Ben Kamal, who was my first ever coach and mentor, big brother role model, and Mr. Devin Hansen, who was my head of year, became executive head teacher for ARC Academies across London. Those two guys in particular, you know, as well as my mom, were really just so influential uh, in terms of where I went in my life and inspired me to do the things that I wanted to do and passionate about, which was football, and then subsequently coaching and working with young people. I love that, and I want to. I want to also shout out um, Justin Finlayson from United Borders as well, because he's another brother doing some fantastic work in a similar space to yourself. Yeah. If I think I'm correct in saying that, what triggered him to set up United Borders was an incident that happened with his son. Yeah, yeah. That triggered him to to, to, to be like, you know what, I, I, we've got to do do better for all of our young young boys and girls, but in particular, I think it's boys. Yeah. You kind of more focus yeah. on if that if I'm right in saying that. Yeah. Was there one incident in your life when you were younger that that triggered you to want to do what you do now? Or was it just a case of 
this was something you always wanted to do from even when you was young? No, when <clears> I was younger, I just wanted to be a professional football player, a businessman and an entrepreneur. And fortunately, I've managed to do all three. Okay. Um, but that's because of football. Um, but I think one of the most difficult experiences I had was my, my dad leaving the household at the age of eight. And that really kind of made me feel so isolated because he was my role model. He was that person I looked up to. Um, and we have a good relationship now. Mm -hmm. But when he left, you know, I was age eight and he just wasn't in my life the way that I needed him to be. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he had the capacity at that time in his life to do what I needed. So that was one of the, the main inspirations. Um, but also I witnessed, a, unfortunately I witnessed a stabbing at the age of 14 mm -hmm. and, and that just changed my whole kind of trajectory in terms of who I was hanging around with at that time. I was 14 at the time, just going into year 10. And I realized that if I continue to hang around with these, my friends that were from Peckham, you know, predominantly Peckham boys, that this might be my fate. And I just decided to really focus on myself and be selfish. Um, and that was really, the main catalyst and I never really saw myself working with young people when I was young because I just wanted to be selfish mm -hmm. you know when you're young that's what you want to do mm -hmm. you just want to make money and do all these different things but yeah I, it became a passion of mine as a byproduct of football and when I started playing professionally I had to learn how to coach and that's what led me to working with young people and it was something I was equally good at mm -hmm. so uh, those are the inspirations really behind what I'm doing today and what were some of the wins that you have gained by doing the work that you've done? What are some of the kind of standout things that you think, because the work that I do, that's been a success and you know, he or she's been a success. What are the kind of poignant things across this particular work that stand out for you? You know what, it's been a very fulfilling career. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, I've been working with young people for 24 years, mm -hmm. so since the age of 16. Uh, grew up on the Ellsbury Estate in South East London, in between Peckham, Camwell, Elephant and Castle. I know it well. Yeah, went yeah, school yeah. around that way, so I know <laughs> Where well. did you go? What school? I went Ramsey, Michael Ramsey. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. I think that's probably on par with my school. I went to Kingsdale. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay, no, no. So we, we, we weren't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't that bad. No, Ramsey we were was... Bad, but we yeah, weren't Ramsey, Woolworth, Chaucer. <laughs> yeah. I decided to leave all those schools and go to go to Kingsdale, which was, yeah, we had security guards in our school. <laughs> yes. That's how bad that was. Um, but, um, <clears> yeah, it just, for me... The people that I've supported has been in their thousands, you know. I can walk down Woolworth Road, Peckham, and get stopped by random men now who are like 29, 13, mm -hmm. like, yo, sir, I'll say, so you remember when you said this to me? And yeah, you used to coach me here and there. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are successful in different ways, you know, in, in terms of changing those trajectories and changing their mindsets. But if you're looking at people probably in the, you know, Jaden Sancho, mm -hmm. you've got Jaden Sancho I worked with, Reese Nelson of Arsenal, mm -hmm. uh, Tammy Abraham briefly, Adam Ola Lookman, all those guys I, I worked with through the London Youth Games team for Southwark, which I was team manager. Um, but it was a, probably another 35, 40 players that we've helped on that journey and they're still coming through okay. today. But um, so what, kind of, what kind of age were those boys <clears throat> when you were working with them? So Jaden, Jaden and Reese, I started working with them when they were age eight. Uh, okay. I actually met Jaden long before that when he was about five, when he was at the Watford Development Centre and my friend was running the, the sessions. He actually called me down and said, Sace, you need to come look at this boy. Okay. He's amazing. I'm like, all right, cool, I'll come down. And that's when I first came across Jaden. But they were eight, you know, when I worked with them up until about the age of 14 okay. uh, when they moved away and got their respective deals with clubs. But still in my life today, you know, still very close with Reese, mm -hmm. uh, still very close with Adam Ola, mm -hmm. uh, Jordan Ive as well. Mm -hmm. Um, who I worked with. So yeah, it was really using the sport to mentor them and give them a holistic kind of guidance and support. And I call that guided discovery that I'm behind them. Mm -hmm. When they, they fall, mm -hmm. I pick them up and I give mm -hmm. them that, that, that kind of push. So there's a, lots of people within the sporting realm, but also 
there's a young man called Ayomide uh, who I worked with. He was our third mentee at Mentivity and he went into BT as a software apprentice. He's now a fully-fledged software developer now oh. and 22 finishing his degree. So there's so many successes. Um, and again, they're not just young men because Mentivity is a play on words. So it's mentoring activity. It's okay. not just about yeah. men. Yeah. Um, so we support young ladies as well. Um, <coughs> we've got a young lady called Juliet who represented Nigeria under 20s. Uh, was supposed to go to the World Cup, unfortunately didn't make the final squad, but it's going to go to university now, UEL, to study uh, sports journalism. Another young lady called Tiani, uh, she hated school, hated everything around her, even Mentivity and myself at first, but um, she's actually going to the university to study sports psychology, uh, which oh. is amazing. Oh. So we push these young people, you know, in a way that they can, you know, respond to. Uh, but we also show them a lot of love and a lot of honesty. So we've been very successful. Um, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to your playing time in, in, a, in a second, but with the work you're doing with Mentivity and the work you've done working with young people over the last 20 plus years, have you noticed a difference in what the boys in particular want to do when they're older? Or is it still a case of football is still the main driving ambition for them? Or in, in this era now where you can almost be more fa famous than a footballer by being an influencer or, yeah. or a videographer, whatever it may be. Mm. Has that significantly changed or is football still the dominant, um, uh, you know, bit of meat to dangle in front of these young boys? Yeah, football's always going to be that, especially in South East London. Um, obviously, we've got South of the River documentary, mm -hmm. which documents, you know, 14% of players in the Premier League are mm -hmm. from South East London, mm -hmm. which is phenomenal. Uh, and, and that's only going to increase. But um, yeah, football's still the central theme for both boys and girls in South East London because it's it's viable. Like I said before, it's tangible. It's something that they can do every day. Um, and some other things are not as tangible, but you know, people are becoming influencers, people are becoming actors, people are getting involved in music uh, as well. So I think South East London is a very expressive area. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of young people need to express themselves in different ways, whether it's on the football pitch or in the studio, or whether it's through their studies, you know, but football's still the predominant focus for so many people. And talk on that South London source there, because a lot of people, when I talk, when I chat about South London's difference everywhere else and we're built differently, people look at me like, what? They don't believe me. They're I'm not like, from there, that's why. They don't get it. And, and you know what, deep down, they want to be from yeah, South yeah, London. Do. Everyone wants to be from South. Right. But when I say it, they're just like, oh, whatever, Jordan. Yeah, yeah. So just talk a little bit what makes, in your opinion or your view, people from South London, youngsters, mm different from other parts of London and indeed the country? I think it's the, the harsh environment, not to say there's not harsh environments in, in other places, but I think it's such an, a melting pot of culture in South East London. If, if you talk about Peckham, for example, and Brixton, you can have the Latin American community, you can have the African community, mm -hmm. the Caribbean community. Then there's so many people mm -hmm. that are coming in. And I think it's been the really the focal point when people came to this country and you talk about the Windrush generation, my grandparents came straight here mm. to Brixton. Mm -hmm. You know, they went to South London, mm -hmm. South West London, but then they subsequently moved to Surrey Keys and then Campbell and Peckham. And I think everybody migrated there. So I think in terms of the, the generations and the roots that we've got there, you know, they're, they're far reaching. You know, even before the Windrush generation, mm -hmm. there was a lot of people uh, from other countries in this area. Um, so, yeah, I think South East London, for me, I'm so proud to be from South East London. Mm -hmm. I'm so proud to be doing the work that I'm doing and be associated with some of the successes. Um, but, you know, the Ellsbury Estate in particular, so many people 
Tiny Temper, mm-hmm. um, Reese Nelson, so many people, uh, even Reese's old agent, you know, Emeka was yes, from Elgeby yes, Estate. Yes. So there's so many people from that area that are doing great things, even music, house music. You've got mm-hmm. Tipper, you've got mm-hmm. so many people mm-hmm. doing great things. So I just think it was just a place where people had to be creative. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look at the Elgeby Estate, if you looked at it from an aerial view, there were so many different ways you could go to get to one destination. Totally, and totally. I think that's reflective of life. And I think that's one thing for a lot of people from South London. There's so many different ways that we could have gone and so many ways that people could have arrived at the same kind of negative or positive juncture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very, very common. Um, you speak to a lot of black men that they could have gone the wrong mm-hmm. route. You know, mm-hmm. it could have been really easy. But I think there's a, a real determination to not be part of that stereotypical narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think people are just harnessing their, their skills, their gifts and trying to share those with the world. Let's talk about football now. Are, are you one of those? I've not read up on this. I wanted to kind of hear it raw from you, fresh. Are you one of those kind of one of those guys? Say it's just like, boy, man could have been like, <laughs> man could have been playing for Man United and Arsenal, you know. But man had the knee injury, so boy, it's unlucky. But I could be there, you know. I should yeah. be there on Prem Super Sundays. Uh, what was your journey, and what could tell this? It's kind of that as well. So <laughs> I'm actually, yeah, it's a bit. I don't even want to admit it, but um, yeah, I, football. I, I got into football late, you know. I got into football late. Ian Wright was my main, the main person that got me into football. When I came across Ian Wright at the age of eight, which was just before my dad left, uh, I think he was at Crystal Palace at the time, and I saw him on TV, and I saw these two guys up front, right and bright, mm-hmm. and I was like, who are they? And they're mm-hmm. doing, they're popping the ball mm-hmm. off, and one twos and scoring great goals. And I was like, I like this guy. Mm-hmm. And then he moved to Arsenal, and then I just became obsessed like with Ian Wright, and I think he was everybody's uncle and mm-hmm. father figure. And mm-hmm. From afar, he he inspired me and, and raised me, you know, through football because he was so charismatic, so energetic, but he was so grateful, you know, every time he graced that pitch, he had a smile on his face. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he was just very tenacious. So yeah, football for me started late. I only started playing like club football at the age of 14. Uh, the first time I played on grass with boots was at age 11. Okay. Um, and then from 14 to 17, I just really started focusing on football, like just like, so much training as much as I could joined Red Lion where I came across my mentor, Abdullah, and I just learned the hard way, you know, because I was a striker at first. And then when I went on grass, the technique wasn't quite there. (laughs) So it got stuck at the back. Uh, I've always been strong and tough tackling because I used to play with the older boys Um, and just became a really good defender and midfielder. So, yeah, from from school, left school, uh, my best friend, a guy called Rebo, who was like the Rio Ferdinand, an unsigned Rio Ferdinand, top, top player. Um, and he was pushing me a lot. And then I went to Thamesby Town at the age of 16, 17, and then pushed on from there. And then, then I got scouted uh, in t- 2002, 20 mm-hmm. years ago, on the Ellsbury Estate. I actually uh, set up a tournament myself, funny enough, just remembered it. Um, and we had loads of teams come, and it was that winner stays on. And there was a scout watching from the side, dressed in all white tracksuit, sitting on his Range Rover, and he called me over. He was like, come here, come here. I must be thinking, what does he want? He says, would you travel for football? I said, yeah. Like, would you travel to Ireland? Would you travel to Austria, France? I said, I'll go anywhere for football. And six weeks later, I was out in the Republic of Ireland on Bro. trial of a team called uh, the Mullingar Town, Bro. who were in the ICOM under-21 league at the time. And yeah, I just moved literally, I, no, after an hour training, manager said, yep, yeah, take you, chairman. He took both me and my best friend, Rebo. And then a week later, I was living in Ireland. So I moved from the Osbury Estate to this small town called Mullingar in County Westmeath in the middle of Ireland. And that was it. I was playing professional football. So I was in the same league as Shelbourne, Bohemians, Drada, Dublin City. And the first game I actually played was at Ireland's training ground. Um, one of the best pitches I ever played on. And okay. I was like, wow, 
I made it. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. five years of, of solid work and I got my first professional contract. And Ireland was a great experience, you know, we're playing against a lot of good players that just finishing their careers now, like Wes Hoolihan and uh, a number of other players. And then from there I went to Romania. So I went to FC Brasso and they were in the top league, Syria, uh, at the time in Romania. And um, they were playing UEFA Cup. That's how old they are, oh, UEFA okay. Cup back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. And um, after the second game, they offered me a three-year contract, oh. um, and which I was happy to sign straight away because I wanted to get back to England. I yeah, wanted to play yeah. for Arsenal. Yeah, That's what I wanted yeah, to yeah. do, you know, and I wanted to play for England. How old are you this time? I was 21. Okay. Yeah, 2004 okay. that was, so 21, just turning 22. And um, yeah, and unfortunately it didn't work out because my, my agent at the time was very greedy and okay. uh, messed up the whole deal. So I came back to England after playing two years of pro and back in Ellsbury Estate. Then I ended up playing for Banstead Athletic <laughs> in the mm -hmm. Ryman Div 1. Um, and then I was trying to get out to the America to do my scholarship for Howard University, which mm -hmm. they offered me two years prior. So, um, yeah, that was my journey in football, but it came to an end because of a bad injury. Okay, so okay. I had a broken, dislocated my ankle uh, just before I was <coughs> supposed to fly out to Howard University. Um, and then I just realized that football wasn't going to be the route mm -hmm. out for me, um, even though I still wanted it to be. And then I had my son. That's when I had to start focusing and, and start coaching really more extensively. So, yeah, I could have done it. I could have played at Arsenal Man United. <laughs> so you, want, <laughs> so you are that guy there. You are that guy. So it's not But, um, yeah, I just, it just didn't work out, you know. But I always knew, I was always confident in my abilities. And, you know, I'm still playing now. You know, I'm nearly 40 now. So I'm still playing, you know, with players half my age um, and still and playing vets football as well. So football's been a central theme to mm. my progress and something I'm always going to be passionate and grateful for. I think people that were seeing certain documentaries would have seen you featuring, so that South London one, for example, you were in that as well. I think that people that know, know you would have known about that. Mm. But most people know you as someone that is, as I mentioned, an activist and someone that is a community leader mm. um, in, in many senses as well. Um, a lot of your work is um, in the community, in the black community, trying to ensure that the safety and the rights of black people is, is are protected. Yeah and the black people, and particularly young black people, can prosper as best as, as, best as possible. Um, we're, we're in a, at a time where we're still losing our brothers and sisters, um, be it ourselves or, or other outsiders, mm -hmm. i.e. the police, that are um, one way or another killing our brothers and sisters. Yeah. What's the answer to stopping this? What, what is the answer, say, to kind of ensuring that, you know, the time of recording this, this is what two weeks now on from the the the, the death of Chris Cabba. Mm. What is the answer and solution to ensuring that we're not doing another podcast in three years' time and it's still a problem? Or indeed, are you less hopeful that actually there will be no end to us losing our brothers and sisters, be it internally within our community yeah. or externally from institutions? Yeah, it's a very difficult question to answer because there's no one solution. I think there's a number of of solutions within the giant solution, which is really doing the work, like for example, with mentivity on a day-to-day -day and try to rehabilitate young people that have been marginalized and disaffected by the system of oppression that we have. Mm -hmm. uh, but also I feel that as a community, we haven't done enough to protect our young people and give time to other people's children because we're so focused on trying to look after our own, which mm -hmm. is obviously a responsibility, but also financially and economically, you know, we're at a disadvantage. So we're having to work those two jobs and 40, 50 hours a week. So ultimately the children are becoming a byproduct of that kind of capitalist outlook. 
Um, so I think that with mentivity and in, in trying to inspire people to give time to other people's children and actually volunteer that time, young people see that time as love, you know, because they know that you're not obligated to be there. You're not family. You're not a friend. You're there because you care about them. So that's the really the early intervention work that we need to do. And I think we have to do more across the board uh, in the community. But then also, I think we've got to challenge the, the systems of oppression that we face in terms of stop and search and the police and the way that they are not held to account by themselves, but we've got to hold them to account. And that's what I've been really focusing on in the last you know, two years in terms of stop and search, which is something I've faced you know, over 30 times since the age of 14, been assaulted by police officers three times. Um, the first time you know, I, I went to court because an officer assaulted me, but then they claimed that I assaulted the officer. And as a 14 year old, what does that tell you about justice or the justice system? So for a long time, I actually hated the police and a real disdain towards the police until I found a solution. But I had to do the work on myself. Um, and I think a lot of us within the community don't have the capacity to do the work on ourselves or be brave enough to say, right, I've got an issue within myself or there's trauma or I've got to rehabilitate and I need to upskill myself in a way that I haven't done before. And until we get people thinking more consciously like that, I don't think that we're going to actually find a solution. Um, in relation to the issues that we have with, you know, boys and girls, you know, killing each other, I think that they have a lot of self-hatred um, and that's really about us now tapping into that, understanding why they feel the way that they do. But you've got to understand from a young people's perspective, when they go into a school as a young black person, they're marginalised by education, they're told that they don't matter, they're told that they're going to be the stereotypical person from their communities or they're never going to amount to nothing and then in the news, in the media and young people are always blamed for everything in society and adults don't take enough accountability. And I think what we're seeing now is an outpouring of trauma and grief, which has been a cycle that has been happening in our communities, you know, since the Windrush generation that we haven't remedied. Um, so until we do that, I don't think we're going to we're going to see, you know, the desirable things that we want to see in terms of a reduction in in, in crime and in, in killings and violence. And I don't call it youth violence because it's violence. You know, mm. violence is violence. Crime is crime. Black on black crime doesn't exist, you know, white on white crime doesn't exist. Mm. So we've got to stop labeling and stereotyping our communities. And once we're able to heal, I think that we're going to start to see uh, a big change. I'm really interested in the kind of, the answer you gave there, the kind of, in your view, the dual approach needed in terms of there's a lot of accountability from ourselves to be better, mm -hmm. um, but also whilst holding institutions externally to account as well. Because yeah. um, I, I, in my view, I, and it's very, very difficult to kind of say, coming from someone that is not from, well, I'm from Brixton, I'm from an area that has been traditionally known as rough and hard, yeah. but uh, my family around, I'm not, I'm not poor mm. um, and, and I'm doing okay. And I'm aware of that. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of accountability that needs to be taken from our community as well, uh, which I don't always think happens. I think mm. we're very, very quick um, to protest and march against police when yeah. they when they harm our community, yeah. but I don't think we're doing enough of the internal work as a community ourselves to kind of ask ourselves what can we do better to yeah. ensure that we're not an easy target or we're less of an easy target for the police to do stuff to. Exactly. So it, it, it's obviously very important to mentivity to kind of have that dual approach mm -hmm. in no no holding ourselves accountable whilst also holding external institutions accountable as well yeah 100 percent. like I, I will not shy away from that and i will call it out you know uh, when we're protecting people in our communities and we've got that code of silence it does nothing for us you know because when those things happen who do we then call the police so it doesn't actually make any sense so what we've got to do is create 
a police service that is accountable and serves us, you know, but we've also got to do the work. And I'm not going to sit here and be, uh, you know, hypocritical and say, well, we've got to chase the police and then we've got to sort this out and, you know, focus on these issues without doing the issues, you know, on a day-to-day in the community, which I'm doing with Mentivity, so, and long before Mentivity. It's been 24 years, you know, um, and it's such an important thing that we all need to do. Um, just finally, leaders, um, what to you in 2022 does a leader look like? Because there's been a lot of talk last two or three years about lack of leaders, not only in the community, but politically. What for you, because I consider you a leader. For me, a leader is someone that steps up mm. and puts their head above the parapet and says, I might not have the right answers, yeah. but I'm going to try to do something and lead people in a way that I believe is the right way to go. Yeah, yeah. I could be wrong and I could be shot down, but yeah. I'm going to try something. Yeah. What for you is a leader and, and how do we build and how what are you doing at Mentivity to try and build more and more leaders? Well, there's so, so much. I think there's different types of leadership. Um, I think with us, because, for example, with me, I'm, I'm front-facing. You know, I do a lot of the, the talks for Mentivity. I go and do a lot of the outreach work. I do the media work. Like, it's something that I never saw myself doing. So I always like to challenge myself, but also I know that this is my purpose, this is my cause, this is why I'm here. So that's why I'm doing it. You know, I was at Chris Carver's uh, protest just Saturday gone, and I was asked to speak by the family. And it's something I've never done before, never spoken at a protest in my life. And um, I did it because they asked me to do it, and it's something that you, I've never done before. You have to be outside your comfort zone. And I want to show other people, you know, especially my son as well, that we've got to do things that we've never done before to see results that we've never experienced. So I think leadership looks like, you know, different things where you can be out there in the media, very public, but there's people that do it behind the scenes, you know. Um, but I also think that we've got to take more responsibility as leaders. When we say community leaders, a lot of people are out there, although they're doing the great work, what they're doing in their personal mm -hmm. life doesn't marry up with mm -hmm. what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important to do the work on yourself. Um, so for me, which is so important, is therapy. You know, I've been working on that myself for the last three and a half years. And that was because of one of my mentees that was shot and killed on the 5th of May, 2018, Raheem Barton. And I've known him since the age of eight. You know, he was 17 when he was shot and killed. I was with him on the day before he got shot and killed. And that was a very pivotal moment for me. And I realized that I was either gonna continue this cycle of trauma in other areas of my life, or I had to face it head up, you know, head on. And that's what I've done. And because I'm getting that energy right within myself, you know, I don't see myself as, as a very egoic person. Uh, but ultimately, when you get in certain situations, that ego can, mm -hmm. can kind of take flight. But I've been really working on myself, you know, in therapy. And I think that's also a sign of leadership is saying, I am not the person with all the answers. I am not finished working on myself. I'm happy to do this. And you should also do the same. And it's not just about what you say, it's also what you do. So I think it's a combination of the two. Love that. Um, finally, 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 because I've got a wrap. Um, Let's end it with a smile. Apart from your son, mm -hmm. what gives you joy? Ooh. Seeing my people flourish, man. Like literally on a day to day and seeing, whether I know them or not, just seeing black joy and seeing people happy and expressing themselves in a way uh, that makes them happy. Uh, that's what makes me happy. And, you know, it's all about creating a legacy. And I feel that we've created such a legacy here in this country as black Britons. And we're going to continue to do that. And I just want to see more black joy. I love that. Say it's your bad, man. Thanks for your time. Thank <laughs> you very much, man. Pick up yourself. Love, man. Cheers, man. Thank you.